Welcome to the Encrypted Podcast. Encrypted is the Middle East's first and largest podcast dedicated to blockchain and crypto assets. I'm your host, Ahmed Al Balaghi. I wanted to throw a question to our listeners. If you could architect a new internet where privacy is in the user's control, how would you go about doing that? Well, in today's episode, we have Richard Muirhead, who is a co-founder and general partner of Fabric Ventures, who articulates why and how a new privacy-centric construct of the internet commonly known as Web3, would take place. We discuss why Web3, the don't be evil motto, how to convey Web3 to traditional investors, and the intersection of Web3, enterprise, and regulation. But before we jump in, as always, I'd really like to thank those who have been supporting the show. And remember, you could support us in any way possible. You could subscribe, rate, and review the show, sharing the podcast on your social media, and any other way if you like supporting. We really enjoyed this episode, and we hope you do as well. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Encrypted. I'm here in London at the Fabric Ventures office. Fabric Ventures is one of the few VCs that is focused in on Web3, and really smart people. I first met the team at COGX in London last month, and now I'm here with Richard Muirhead, who's the CEO and founder of, of Fabric Ventures, and welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. I want usually what I actually do in the podcast, ask about the guest's background, but I actually just want to dive in into sort of your core and really understand sort of what influenced you to become what you are today. Good, going, going deep uh, right <laughs> out of the gates. Yeah, so for, from a personal perspective, I reckon I was always fascinated by the idea of trying to find elegant solutions to, kind of, to, to problems. Mm-hmm. My grandfather was an engineer and he used to bombard me with these encyclopedias that he actually lived in Australia while we'd moved to, to the UK. And he used to send me by post these very large encyclopedias of, particularly of, of science kind of in a kind of installments. Okay. Which I kept with pride on my, my shelves. Of course, encyclopedias like that have somewhat <laughs> <laughs> passed into the, you know, to history, but you know, that set of tomes as well as other tours he gave me in museums and introductions to science in general inspired me to, 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 to be, should we say, an engineer in, in Outlook. Mm-hmm. And I think when I was coming out of university and thinking about how could I be an engineer, but also be, and be part of the most exciting future that was unfolding, that the internet was that. And so resolved to try and be part of the, the internet sort of wave and, and revolution, quickly found out that my capabilities as an engineer to actually develop software myself were mm-hmm. perhaps more limited than I would like them to be. And so thought that maybe the, the best role for me was to be, you know, looking after the product, the proposition and working with engineers to actually, you know, get it, get it built. Mm-hmm. And so that was, uh, that's what you know, led me into kind of being an entrepreneur for initially. And so I, I kind of, then it was fortunate enough to kind of be involved in, building from envelope to exit a couple of different startups, first in the telecom software space and then in the cloud automation and DevOps space. And so I'd become a, a real fan of the, the the power of the developer to 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 be the kind of primary mm. driving force behind the success of different businesses. So that was one part. I also, in my second company, had 
looked very hard at the challenge of getting many different very smart people. And we were trying to tackle the challenge of managing very complex, increasingly complex data centers and the applications within them. How do you get lots of talented people to collaborate, to share data, share their skills in order to tackle those problems effectively together and the concepts of emergent governance and incentivization and, and how that could work? And we actually also employed some of the core elements of, you know, machine learning or certainly semantic reasoning to try and augment the knowledge of those, those, in, those individuals. And when then finally between 2009 and 2012, 13, I became increasingly uh, familiar with what was going on with Bitcoin and what our friend Satoshi Nakamoto had managed to kind of, you know, prototype, if you will. And that was definitely ultimately courtesy of uh, some emails I received from uh, my very good friend Steve Waterhouse, Pantera, and now Orchid in the spring of 2013, that these came together uh, in my mind to create a, a kind of a new wave of disruption that, and, and, and many people have spoken about this, but felt very, had echoes of what I'd felt in the mid nineties about what was happening with the internet and it got me so excited about embedding my career on that. And, and so that felt very natural that. Now that over the last 10 years, I've made the jump from being a sort of two times founding entrepreneur to being an investor that, that, you know, not only is it, you know, exciting to kind of build fabric around this, this web three wave of computing, but also I think it's, it's so distinct in a number of key characteristics from historical, you know, waves that to be, I think, a, effective or indeed super effective investor you have to be focused and specialized yeah. in this space so then why are you super focused and specialized into web3 what are the key characteristics that really jump out to you i'm like you know this is what i really want to focus on because i'd see a bit of your background you're in bit into venture investing as well after your after your two companies so why did you leave sort of the the traditional tech world, if you will, to, to sort of this this new wave of Web3? Sure. Well, I mean, one, one part of it is that, you know, there's been a couple of studies done, one by Bill Gross at Idea Lab, for example, and other folks in the Kaufman Institute have looked at, you know, what is the, the principal indicator of success for ventures? And I think, you know, arguably then for you know venture funds and timing is importantly, you know, is, is super critical. And, and so... I think if, if you're going to uh, try and build a, a powerful new franchise in, in any space, but let's say in venture, having a, a strategic focus and a specialization and, and at the right time, it makes a lot of sense. So that's from, from a kind of internal perspective. That's why we're excited to, to do that around web three. Why then leave sort of general investing behind? You know, I, I guess, you know, my particular bent or interest is is probably more on the should we call it the deep tech side of things the developer driven mm -hmm. you know high quantity and frequency of you know or, of uh, data well well lots of high data intensity you know decentralization the opportunity to get you know many men women and machine to collaborating over large distances that's very exciting and all of that tempered with how do you think in a, a super elegant way about the way you take these things to market and build a proposition that is delicious which is the the the, the way uh, we, we've come to kind of refer to it in its experience it's delicious to the user or delicious to the developer that means that the the time that it takes for an individual to get not just 
comfortable with the proposition yeah. but really excited about it and love it and tell people about it is as short as possible and that's kind of a really great indicator of success so so and all of those things i think you, you can see coming to you know the present in the mm. web3 movement but there's another aspect which is and you know i don't think for me i i want to rail against kind of uh, governments who might spy upon us or rail against you know, capitalism and how it might not be as inclusive as it could be or rail against big corporations that might take our private data mm. and use it, us as the product and, and take actually open source software they don't own and our data that they've kind of borrowed to build a lot of market cap. It's, it's, those are things that have happened and do happen for understandable reasons of, you know, the profit incentive of capitalization or frankly a very fundamental aspect of human nature that once you have power it tends to corrupt i mean this is kind of i think at the root of religion religion the, uh, let alone just the way in which our current day organizational structures work in in, in government but it is fair to say in a positive sense i think we can architect software today that is so interwoven with our everyday lives you know it makes sense that we think about that architecture then in a very fundamental way i mean it's it's it it is and and will be so intimately connected with everything we do that we better think about how it can have aspects of like privacy by design around our personal data built into it how we can have bonds of trust between individuals when they interact you know over this this you know over the internet of this fabric that aren't relying on third parties that you may not want to have involved or you may not be able to trust and uh, so i think we can build a better you know computing fabric uh, and people are doing that and that is probably the most exciting reason for wanting to be in, involved in it and i think one of the big challenges is how to make sure that you can take that insight which is a bit of a kind of right hemisphere insight into where the way the world is going and it's kind of a you know one has to be in the clouds to have that long view and couple it with a kind of left hemisphere feet on the ground pragmatic view of mm. how, you know how do startups succeed they succeed by having incredibly powerful vision energizing amazing people but then also having really practical steps mm. to building it out and taking it to market and that balance is a really interesting one to try and work with entrepreneurs on and yeah. an exciting one especially in this space all right so before we get on to the backing these entrepreneurs i wanted to sort of still touch upon the the few things that you said about web3 and and particularly this movement so i also read in your thesis that you have something that it's called can't be evil instead of don't be evil which was um, i think categorized by google so the idea of can't be evil. Could you explain that? It's incredible, and we've been looking back at the Google's evolution and the way its business model came about as part of reflecting on how the new business models of Web three are emerging. And it's so quickly. I mean, we all look back with, back with rose tinted spectacles, and we all forget the pain and, and uncertainty that that actually existed at the time. And you know, the, we wrote a good blog piece about this, but you know, for four years. Google existed, burning a huge amounts of cash and being considerably behind its closest competitor before by, should we say, being inspired by the uh, go-to and, and, and became overture and some of the capabilities of their model and, and 
iterating on it, they managed to get to a, a point where they had they built the greatest kind of money printing machine the world has ever seen. And that happened really fast from sort of like 2002 back end of to 2004, five, they went from kind of burning cash and, you know, perhaps having to kind of pull a ripcord yeah. uh, to, to a 32, $36 billion market cap. So it happened incredibly fast. But at that point, they realized suddenly that they were not only kind of you know, indexing, cataloging, cataloging, organizing the world's information, but now they were doing that and making lots of money. And so they, they, they were astute. They needed to come out with a statement that if we, they're going to find themselves in that position and a self-reinforcing yeah. network place, they need to come out with a statement they should, that they should not do anything evil with that. And so they had don't be evil in their, their S1 for, for their IPO and, and, I think it was a smart move. I think it worked for their IPO, although it quickly became parodied, of course. And yeah. I think the the problem again is is that at scale and with large organizations which are fundamentally driven by the profit, you know, motive, even if one has the specific individual intent not to be evil, it it can um, quite quickly you can have unintended consequences. Yeah. And so whether it be Google or Facebook, where ultimately the the objective function is to kind of get you know, high paid ads in front of eyeballs, the result can be to, you know, cause us to buy a lot of shit that we don't need, often yeah. plastic stuff, yeah. for example, and, and maybe have other mental health effects as well about kind of, you know, the, the echo, superficial echo chambers we can find ourselves existing in or yeah. indeed have you know, untoward effects in terms of the outcome of democratic votes as we've you know, also seen. So that happened. I don't think people went into it with a malevolent intent, but it unfolded. But just because it's happened, you know, it doesn't mean that we need to be content that that's the way it should always be. And it is possible, as mentioned before, to architect into the, the software an approach that is private by design. That means that individuals have a, you know, a, a sovereign right, a kind of universal, you know, right given to them as individuals to, to their own data and that perhaps that we can both encapsulate that in software, but also come up with business models in these new networks that are becoming marketplaces, come up with a business model that can replace the advertising one and therefore make it feasible for us to actually roll that software out. Because it's all very well being able to come up with technically the solution. Yeah. But you've also got to come up with a solution that means that mm -hmm. it's actually going to become popular. It's going to become adopted. Absolutely. So I want to talk about... Okay, like I, I get all, all what you're trying to say. I, I, I get it, I understand it. And when you go in and deploy money into these companies, you know, everyone's on the same page. But when you're talking to people who are not in the space, talking to, you know, potential LPs who, who want to come into, you know, your fund, as you guys are now doing a fundraise, how do you convince, you know, traditional investors about this new wave and and are they getting it? I mean, I'm sure you've had a lot of phone calls and you're get, receiving a lot of feedback. What What's going on? Yeah, good question. So, you know, I mean, it's, I've now, I guess, have been pitching people about the opportunity to invest in here mm. since 2013. So coming out, you know, six plus uh, years. And definitely it's changed, you know, considerably, you know, in that time. I think, you know, people maybe give you an audience at least because they, they feel like you've seen a wave like this before and then you've recognized some of the patterns and think that you, you know, therefore might, there's a possibility. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that, you know, the most effective way to illustrate to people that you might be, you know, onto something is to be able to talk about several different examples of this set of technologies going to, mm -hmm. you know, being used in the market to solve a problem. 
I think, you know, you have to very often in the conversation is getting away from, you know, this all being uh, synonymous with Bitcoin or you all being synonymous with cryptocurrency and, and being more articulate than just saying this is about blockchain and saying that actually that if you, you can preserve privacy, if we can create trust between individuals, you know, cryptographically over the network, if you can incentivize people to operate together in large numbers, mm-hmm. that this is kind of actually a, it's a fundamental extension of the things that sets us apart from the rest of the animal kingdom. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It, I love that. I it, like that. It is because, because, because yeah. it's, it actually allows us to collaborate at scale. There's a, I mean, mm-hmm. there's a great piece in, in Sapiens, I think it is Harari's, mm-hmm. you know, about a book about, you know, genetically, we know we're pretty similar uh, to chimpanzee. And if you were to put a, a chimpanzee and a, a human both on the, uh, an island together, mm-hmm. and which one would you bet on to actually survive? Well, you know, if, if they were alone on an island and you had to struggle for survival. Yeah probably put the money on the chimpanzee. But the thing that really sets us apart is that if you put a thousand, ten thousand, a hundred thousand individuals into a confined space or into a city, you know, a stadium or a city, then, you know, with a hundred thousand chimpanzees, you'll have total chaos and sort of chimp warfare. But you can have a hundred thousand people in a stadium and watch a rock concert mm. in a very, very intricate kind of, yeah. you know, choreography of, of networks within networks that will yeah. behave like. So, so it's that capability that really has allowed us to develop our humanity and to, to, to build the incredible things that we see about around us from, you know, the Saturn V rocket to the, <laughs> you know, to, yeah. to, to bikes, to pencils, to the computers, to, to everything. And so what I mean is that, so if you sit back and think about then that in the abstract, that that's what the Web3 wave of computing is allowing us to magnify and then apply it to some examples of sharing your genetic and physiological and behavioral data to t- tackle the discovery of new drugs and to share that data to accelerate the way, the rate at which we can prescribe the or diagnose the right drug to the right for the right person at the right time and then close the loop on that with more data. If you can tackle problems like that or, you know, being able to encourage businesses to share a lot of very commercially sensitive data mm-hmm. in real time up and down a supply chain in order to make it more efficient, more timely, less yeah. wasteful and more sustainable, more transparent in terms of, you know, who's getting which product from when, where and when and, 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 you know, mm-hmm. and so forth. Then those are very in, intricate problems actually that can not only make the world more efficient, but also yeah. on an economic basis, but actually environmentally be, be, be better and ethically be, be better. So I think when you can come up with some of those yeah. specific examples, Makes that's sense, what gets yeah. the investors excited. Awesome. What's really interesting when people talk about generally web three, there's, I don't see there's a lot of emphasis on the, f- on, on one of the biggest problems that's still not being solved, which is with the increase in sort of digitalization, we become more isolated. You know, you, you have, you see a, a living room with a family, everyone's on their phone, right? And probably the brother is texting the sister instead of actual talking. So we, we see, we still see this till now. And it's a, it's a, it's, it's, it's still a problem in many societies, many families. Do you think Web3 could potentially shift this? I mean, is it related? Have you thought about this sort of topic before? Look, I mean, I think I could even be so bold as to say we're all guilty of this. Yes. <laughs> um, and I think on that aspect, look, one side of me 
says, look, the social norms need to adapt and one needs to get used to the fact that people are using phones and, you know, they'll want to do that because it's their hyper-effective tools for getting stuff done and mm-hmm. consuming information, sharing information. And so, of course, that's going to be the case. Uh, so the person who's observing this needs to get, you know, comfortable with it. The, the, the second thing is that the person who's doing it, I think, needs to... You know, I think there's very small social cues you can give, conversational cues to, to make it more acceptable. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. okay, I'm just going to, I just got to do this, this, and this, and I'll be right back to you yeah. without just sort of suddenly being fixated on the device in, in, in your hands and, and detached from the people around you. Yeah. I mean, the third thing is I think that we have to become more disciplined, which is never an easy thing, but, you know, mm. with great sacrifice comes great rewards and, and, not and limit screen time. I mean, I have two daughters and trying to, you know, see with them how you can bake into their thinking that, that, that they shouldn't default to a screen time of any description is pretty important. But mm. we know this is hard. I like to exclude screens from the kind of the bedroom and have an enclave where you're, yeah, where, where, where you're not subjected to that. But, you know, every now and then you find excuses why, oh, wait, I, you know. Just going to finish these couple of things off. So, yeah, but I think that that's what we need, need to learn to, to do. And at the end of the day, I think people who are disciplined like that will find that they end up with more fulfilled and happier lives. But will Web3 deliver this? I'm not sure. I'm not sure Web3 is, is, uh, is going to be capable of, of doing that. But I think actually, possibly to the contrary, I think there will be more devices, more tightly woven mm-hmm. into, into our, into our lives. And um, I think we're going to have to, you know, be even better at, at making sure that's a net benefit to you. But I mean, I think it's, the stakes couldn't be higher. You know, those people who learn how to master this, this, this new wave, you know, will have magical capabilities. And those people who don't learn how to master and let it rule them, you know, will, will be somewhat subjugated, I think. So, you know, the stakes are high. All right. So when the stakes are usually high, I mean, you know, this is usually... The- the, the case with entrepreneurs, people who are actually building stuff in this space or in, generally in any space. And the, the type of entrepreneurs you back, I mean, it says clearly in a poster here in the office, I'm backing with three entrepreneurs. But what else do you look at when you actually sort of deploy capital in these guys? I mean, is it the amount of risk they're taking, the focus they have? Of course, the team's important. What do you really prioritize? So, I mean, one, there are a few ways of looking at this. I mean, certainly when we're looking at the the startup, the, the ventures we're looking to engage in, you know, there are different investors looking at investing at different stages and therefore taking on different risks. You know, are we happy taking the risk that this may or may not scale into the to, to an extremely large and, and, you know, enduring venture? Yeah, because we're that's going to come down the track. Are we, mm-hmm. are we happy that there may be product extensions that need to be built and, uh, and that this needs to be elaborated? Yeah, we're happy to take those kinds of risk. Are we happy that if there's no product at all built, mm. we tend to want to see some kind of product built at the point at which we, you know, we start, but it may be that's only 80% built and, you know, 80% to be built and still in mm-hmm. the kind of whole go to market and scaling side of things. The aspects that where we, we have to try to eliminate as much risk as possible are really around market and and people, the founding team. Mm-hmm. So on the market side, it's harder than one might think if one if venture is not your game, mm-hmm. because it's not there will not almost be def- by definition data to tell you how big this market is you're entering, mm-hmm. uh, at least not sort of 
you know, data that directly describes the market. You're going to have to come at it from a different angle, data that indicates how great this problem is or, yeah. you know, how many people could appreciate how big this problem is and want to have it solved or how great a habit this new technology could, could encourage, hopefully a productive habit. So you have to come at it from a slightly different way to imagine the new market often that could be created. Mm. But that is an intense area of focus for sure. And then when it comes to people, and then this is, for me, very much in reverse order of, you know, priority, then this, the game of building a venture that is, you know, venture backable and is ultimately enduring is, is pretty much as hard a game as you could possibly want to play. So you're looking at people who are, you know, totally relentless in their approach, but relentless in, you know, a very, astute, you know, fashion, very uh, okay. open to fee feedback and, and actually somehow managed to kind of find this balance between self-awareness and taking feedback and self-confidence and, you know, soldiering on. So I think that's a very interesting one. And somehow also, I mentioned it before, being able to bridge the gap between being able to tell a story about an incredible vision of the future, mm -hmm. but break that down into very, very practical you know, next steps. Yeah. That's also very important. I think another characteristic is that you, you're generally, it's not just one individual, but it's a small team you're investing in. And folks who have managed to build together a number of individuals mm. with complementary skills, you know, that, that there's, I, I couldn't quote you the numbers off the top of my head, but, you know, teams of two or three are many times more likely to be successful than just a team of, of one. And then, but that's not enough. You also do need to make sure that teams are tricky to keep together and co-founder risk and co-founder friction yeah. risk is very high. So trying to understand whether this team is, you know, has hopefully constructive conflicts. Yeah. They have enough trust flowing around the place. They can actually really debate things out and then move and move things forward, but not so much that, you yeah. know, that heat is going to turn into a forest fire and the yeah, whole thing is yeah. going to fall apart. Cool. So. So I think that's the way that, that, that we we think about it. But there's an awful lot trying to have an intuition for for, for the people who are going to be involved, and you know, and, and also making sure finally perhaps that you don't fall into the trap of just looking for people who are you comfortable with because they're cut from the same cloth as you. Because mm. that ultimately isn't that might might be actually a a con contra indicator yeah. that you need to kind of factor out to yeah. find the other things. All right, great. So. I also want to discuss sort of another element, which is how could this space actually intertwine with enterprise? How could enterprises be involved? And when we look at sort of, you know, Web3 and you talk about privacy by design, if, for example, enterprises or tech companies would come, come into this, the experiences would be very different, as in, in terms from the UX point of view, because we're used to share our data if we live in a Web3 world we don't do that. It's going to be a very different sort of outlook. Do you think that these enterprises and tech titans particularly would actually sort of change these different processes that they have or they offer to customers and will, you know, the end users actually be happy or, you know, I mean, it, it will be a very different design once, once this actually does come out. Look, I do think that some of the tech titans are really getting the, the, the bit between their teeth and working out how they can change to adapt to this. I mean, I think we've seen that obviously with Facebook and, um, and Libra and the wallet Calibra that they're, they're looking to roll out. Obviously it's still early days and there's regulation mm. they need to get through and congressional oversight and, and, and the rest of it. And let's, 
you know, perhaps be clear that, you know, what they are proposing at the moment is a, you know, a digital currency rather than a kind of fully decentralized cryptocurrency still because of the way yeah. there's a central body, you know, I- involved. Nonetheless, it seems to be a very clear attempt to pivot, a very major pivot, you know, their business model away from, you know, purely ad driven to something that involves transactions and to something where the, the individual now has an identity that they own more of. But perhaps because they know own more of it, they will be happy to use a kind of a, this, their network derived identity more broadly in another whole number of interactions. And that's, and that Facebook, I guess, seeking to position themselves within that ecosystem to, to continue to deliver returns for their shareholders. I'm not, I'm not sure it's totally clear how that's going to unfold, but people, they're clearly taking it seriously. Although, of course, they can afford to make a number of different bets. And, you know, I think, so any of the folks that, that uh, exist in the world where personal data is used in order to fuel their rent-seeking business model are likely to be thinking again about how in this, you know, new world they, mm. they need to, to fit within that new, that value chain. I think it, where you've got more traditional enterprise products rather than kind of, you know, ones where the, your personal data is the product, but rather, you know, something like a salesforce.com or a, a workday or a, you know, SAP software that's being used internally within an enterprise or in the supply chain. You know, that actually I saw an interesting statistic right now that, that if you were to just to put your money, I think equally into all of the SaaS IPOs that have occurred in time over time. Mm. I think they said 47, but maybe it's more than that, but it's something like that, that you, that you would get, I think, about a 5x return on your money from that. And then if you compare that to venture, okay. that's, that's really pretty good because okay. venture people, you know, it's tough to get more than a 3x return from your mm. fund. Um, and so this is going, you know, so this is not going into SaaS companies at the beginning, but at the point of the IPO, the public listing okay. still. So, and only in a four year time frame. So what's, what is my point with that? My point is that, you know, the, the move to IP, which then created the move to the cloud of applications, mm-hmm. has created this new breed of software application that has created that level of returns. I think the move to an architecture also on IP where, you know, devices and enterprises and individuals can all own their data and collaborate in this new trustless and private by design manner, that move to that new architecture is going to be at least as big as that. So it's going to be something that the big software companies and indeed SaaS companies will have to pay attention to as the kind of architecture matures and people try and tackle, you know, and I think mm. no one's going to roll out suddenly tackle the whole supply chain. It's going to People are going to come in and tackle very specific problems within one supply chain, which might make it not even look like a supply chain problem per se. And supply chain really is a kind of a, a general catch-all for the information sh- sharing activities between large businesses. Yeah. Which is obviously a multi-trillion dollar area, but yeah. people tackle much smaller problems and in different ways using, using the new architecture and probably in ways we don't even think about it because it's yeah. a new way of thinking. All right. I also want to talk about accompanying regulations that have emerged. And if we sort of look towards home, which is Europe, GDPR, of course, has come out. We've also had open banking. How do you see these two relatively sort of recent regulations helping this movement and sort of crypto more broadly? I think we we all witnessed it. Uh, Well, sorry, those of us who were kind of banging around either with code or, or in the workforce back in, you know, late 90s, early noughties, saw, saw, saw the kind of 
the beginning of what had become known as kind of the API economy yeah. and the move towards big data. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just always necessary that that there was a rethinking of how that was going to work. Mm. Like, uh, how could you trust an API? How could you sh- yeah. trust the sharing of that data? How you could feel comfortable with it, with, you know, the privacy limitations around it. And so I think open banking, of course, is great in, in actually acknowledging that systems are better when they have mm-hmm. those open APIs and the data can be shared. And this needs to be in individuals. It's not right that individuals' data should be locked within a banking, one yes. particular part of the banking system, one particular bank, and that you need more competition. And so I think, you know, we're seeing now a number of companies and we happen to made an investment in one called Rails Bank and looking at others now using open APIs in, in the more broad crypto banking environment. I think, you know, that will, you know, because I'm a firm believer, as I kind of mentioned earlier in the power as a kind of driving force of innovation of the developer. Mm-hmm. Can you cut out all the layers of obfuscation and filtering between the inside into the problem to be solved and how you can solve it? That, that, that it's, that I think that's going to be very exciting as more and more of those APIs exist, especially if you can tackle the problems of trust yeah. and privacy on top of it. So I think that's, they, those kind of flow together very neatly. On the question of the protection of individuals' data rights, I happen to believe and optimistically that it's important that there is a sort of third way between the kind of more commercially driven, sometimes slightly wild west nature of the US with respect to, you know, data with the kind of top down approach to kind of federal management of that, that situation to, to obviously a more state derived approach to the management of data that exists in China. And that there's a third way within Europe that actually might be quite effective where there's a balance between, you know, there's a respect of the individual's right to the data, but there's perhaps a role for the state to help enforce the sovereign right of an individual's to, to their data and not to, to be spammed or not to have it stolen or, you know, abused and so forth. Now, having said all of that, my feeling is that the GDPR is, is, is kind of a first step in a, in a direction, yeah. but that things need to move faster. There are always often with these things unintended consequences and I think that one of the unintended consequences is that the, 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 how the clampdown has occurred in terms of the use of email lists and the outreach and the, the controls that need to be put in place. You know, this is an overhead for smaller companies. And then, you know, with the threat of kind of, you know, real fines, it, it tends to make this easier for the bigger companies and, and actually quite hard to accommodate for the smaller ones. So I'm not sure that the kind of exactly the right set of legislation has been found, and but hopefully we can use this as a first step and, and, and find that path. So before I close things off, usually I'd like to ask just a few quick fire round questions. The main thing is that when it comes to Web3 and decentralization, proponents of it do eat your own dog food. So, so look, we are clearly transacting in crypto, you know, reasonably frequently. Yeah. We aren't yet paying our bills in that, that <laughs> I think part of the economy has yet to kind of roll out. I think probably the core area where we are eating our own dog food is that, you know, we believe in a, f- a flat and, you know, collaborative kind of working environment. And that I think that, you know, focusing on how you can, you know, deliver that culturally, you can develop that culturally and learn from each other. Different folks with different, cut from different class with different experiences and skills and ages and, and, and come together to, to solve, you know, and, and actually not just people just within the organization, but a, across 
in kind of centric, concentric circles out from the heart of the organization, yeah. interacting with other networks, that we try to be that type of organization. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that, that's probably the core part of the message of Web3. So in that sense, we're eating our own dog food. But as soon as the applications that we need are out there and we've been toying, we have our own skunk works and studios and we've been building some of them, as soon as they're ready for prime time, then I'm sure we'll be avid consumers of the apps themselves. All right. I realized that there was one top, what, there was one question I forgot to ask, but I think this could also qualify as a firearm question. How often do you question your assumptions and theories? So, I mean, I mentioned before constructive conflict. And I think one thing I try to, you know, we can encourage and rely upon from, from the team is that regardless of how often I question them, everybody else will question them in, in the team that is. And I so, say, like, I think that's, you know, super healthy. I think. If, if you create too ordered an environment where your everything is working predictably as you want it to operate, then it's quite hard to be innovative and, you know, and sort of stretch, you know, stretch the end, the envelope of your kind of, you know, and stretch your horizons and, and, and to do anything interesting. But, and, and so therefore, when you do do that, you're likely to kind of whatever, you know, singe your, your wings as you fly too high yeah. and whatever. And I think. You just got to take the opportunity to question your assumptions and your approach every time that that happens. And I think making space to do that on a kind of your, in your daily rhythm is key. And let's just put it this way. If, if you, if you don't have enough sleep, which I think increasingly clear is an absolute superpower, uh, having, having good sleep, especially when you've had two young kids, you realize yeah. that if you don't exercise enough and you don't take a little time to do whatever, serves for meditation for yourself it's quite hard to clear your mind but when you do clear your mind then i think that's that's a good moment to kind of question the way you're going about things and final question is if you had to recommend two people that i could interview who do you recommend yeah interesting characters to to talk to so what, what, what's your objective with your conversation with them? So, Are you wanting more insight into crypto or more insight into humanity? Interesting people with interesting stories that are like-minded. So people we've been trying to get a uh, hold of, and again, I don't know whether these are centered enough on this area, but yeah. there's someone I know a little bit, Mark Newsom, the designer. It'd be fascinating to, to okay. talk to him a little bit. And so that, you know, that, that's, that's one guy who's been incredibly successful. His good, very good friend, Johnny Ive also in design would be fascinating. I think we have a very good friend of mine, adventure partner, Christina Frankopan, who's a brother, Peter Frankopan, has written a couple of books, Silk Roads and New Silk Roads, which are incredibly successful. We'd love to talk, talk well, I've spoken to him, known yeah. from a while, but I'd love to talk to him about what's going on in this kind of new frontier. And then Andrew, Andrew Yang from the Yang Gang, who, who kind of really the Silicon Valley candidate from politics in the US. Mm-hmm. I think it'd be interesting to get, get his perspective cool. on all of this, try and get him involved. Yeah. Okay. Let's leave it at that. Awesome. The, the reason why I asked this question is just to see who you'd actually think about as well and also potentially for next guests in the future. So it, it really tests sort of every guest's sort of thought process when thinking about these two people. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. If people want to get in touch with you, how could they get in touch? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter as Richard Muirhead, M-U-I-R-H-E-A-D. And please, you know, connect up there and or send me an email at richard at fabric.vc. Great stuff. Thank you so much for coming on, Richard. My pleasure.